You're listening to the West Wing Weekly. I'm Rishikesh Hirway. And I'm Joshua Molina. And today we're talking about Fredonia. It's episode 15 from season six. It was written by pod favorite Eli Addy. It was directed by Christopher Miziano. And it first aired on February 16th, 2005. In this episode, we're in a vice presidential royal rumble just days before the New Hampshire primary vote. And it's imperative that Congressman Santos gets into the debate if he's going to have any kind of chance for continuing his campaign into the future. Amy Gardner comes back to try and help the Santos campaign, although what her intentions are exactly in the larger scale of things is a little bit up in the air. And to talk about this episode, we're joined by our very special friend, Eli Addy. Hooray! A pleasure, as always. You came straight from brunch. This is true. This is a post-brunch podcast. It might be a little logy. Exactly. Uh, You know, all the carbohydrates have uh, slowed my circulation. Yes. But to counter that, Rishi and I have been fasting for three days. (laughs) (laughs) With brunch to follow. Right. Eli, I want to start things off by asking you about the title. This jumps into the middle of the episode. Say, did you uh, happen to catch the uh, New Jersey Senate debate last week? No, sir. Someone asked about the uh, situation in Fredonia. And Barbara said that he was uh, studying it. Fredonia is fake. It's from a Marx Brothers movie. It's a great line, and and it's sort of the prompt for Santos and why he's so hung up on the debate rules of wanting to have a situation that doesn't just feel like people giving their stump speeches back and forth and and these sort of uh, prefabricated sound bites. But I was curious, what about that reference felt like the right thing to name this episode after? Yeah, you know, it's interesting whenever you are writing a script of any kind, you go on a little bit of a journey where you start with a basket of ideas and you sort of winnow them down and you drop some of them out and you amp some of them up and you and you find out in the process of doing it what the episode is really about. Just in preparation for this, I was looking back at some of my notes that I have on this episode and, and early drafts of the script. I didn't read them, but I was flipping through some papers. And for a while, this episode was actually titled The Silver Bullet, um, which is a reference to you know the, the ad that Josh is trying to make that he hopes will leverage a lot of free media because they can't afford to buy time on, on TV stations. But Fredonia you know, seemed to me, I think, as I went through the process to be more what it was about. It's actually a bit of a stolen reference in the sense that, I don't know if you guys remember, there was a wonderful magazine in the 90s called Spy Magazine. Oh, how I loved it. I was a subscriber. It was great. I didn't subscribe, but I read it as often as I could. And they always did really fun things. I remember one time they sent some billionaires, people like Bill Gates, checks for a penny in the mail to see if they would deposit them. And then if they didn't, they would send them checks for two pennies and they would try to figure out the number at which these billionaires would, or their accountants would deposit the checks. They did a thing once where they called congressional offices and they asked on behalf of probably Spy Magazine, what is the congressman's position on the situation in Fredonia? (laughs) And almost none of the people they called really got the reference. And, you know, some said, I'll have to call you back or I'll have to talk to a policy person. But a lot of them said things like, obviously, the congressman is very concerned and he's studying that issue right now. (laughs) And it always stuck in my mind as an example of just kind of the reflexive sort of nonsense of politics. People who were so disconnected from substance that they would just say anything. That's a fantastic answer. And one of those situations where I didn't know what you were going to say, but that's better than I could have hoped for. And, uh... 
I love this episode. Me too. Oh, thank you for that. It's a funny thing because, you know, when you guys were texting me about opposition research, and I think I may have mentioned to you guys uh, personally that, and I don't know if you want me to tell this story, but those two scripts were written together. I, I sat down at once and wrote Opposition Research and Fredonia at John Wells' request. Um, and I always remembered in my mind that the script for Opposition Research had turned out better and the episode for Fredonia had turned out better. But of course, because I'm a slightly uh, self-loathing New York Jew, I watched the episode of Fredonia and was disappointed by it. But that's just maybe my own issue. Huh. I really liked the episode. I think the, the script is fantastic, but I also really love some specific moments of performance in the episode too. Before we jump off the title, I do want to suggest that if people haven't seen it, that they rent the Marx Brothers Duck Soup. Oh, for sure. I seem to remember that around this time, I know that we used March of the Wooden Soldiers on the West Wing in season four. And I think that actually got me buying a lot of, you know, DVD box sets of old classic comedies, things like Laurel and Hardy and the Marx Brothers. And that may have been another reason it was on my mind. I mean, they're geniuses and the influence behind so much modern comedy that probably most people alive don't even know. But um, I, I second that. It's also worth noting that in Fredonia, no one's allowed to smoke or tell a dirty joke and whistling is forbidden. If chewing gum <laughs> is chewed, the chewer is pursued and in the who's gap hidden. The last man nearly ruined this place. He didn't know what to do with it. If you think this country's bad off, no, just wait till I get through with it. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a pretty good system to me. In this episode, Eli, you're writing for not just Santos, but also for Vice President Russell and also former Vice President Hoynes. You've got a lot of candidates that you're juggling. That's right. Much like Amy. Much like Amy, yeah. Yes, we've indeed. Got, we've got to find ways to make them all sound distinct. And I was wondering, how much of Vice President Gore, your former boss, is there in Bob Russell? You know, Bob Russell, I feel like he was developed sometimes as a bit of a punchline. You know, he was meant to be this kind of also-ran guy from the very beginning. I never saw Gore that way. I think maybe some other people have seen Gore that way. But I actually think that I ended up channeling much more of Al Gore into Santos in this episode than to either Hoynes or Russell, who had pretty much developed their own distinctive voices and existences by this point in the series. And, you know, as we talked about in a separate interview, there's a lot of Barack Obama in Matt Santos in this episode. But what is true of, of Al Gore is that he was someone who often did also bristle at the strictures of modern politics, and also had a real reluctance to be handled. Sometimes he would surrender to it, but he really didn't like it when the smart advisors, quote unquote, would kind of tell him what he had to do, even if it was against his instincts. And he very often would, in the end, go along with it, grousing a bit, um, sometimes to his regret. But Gore was very substantial and had a lot of depth on policy and very shrewd uh, and would have been the first person to say he wasn't a very good public performer, that he was sort of lacking in a kind of political charisma. Though at times he, he had that too. I hope it doesn't sound like I was in some kind of transitive way insulting Al Gore by asking that question. It's more like I actually find Russell a compelling and 
complicated character, even though at times, like you said, he is kind of played off as this joke. I think one of the things you'd said to us at one point was that Al Gore sort of knew all of the jokes that were going to be made at his expense. He could tell them himself, like he knew, knew them already. That's right. And I get that sense from Russell too, where he's working with the pieces that he has, but it is, there's no lack of awareness on his part in terms of like, who's going to make what move. That's true, actually. And that's a very fair way of putting it. And I should add that the uh, the joke about the vice presidential seal. And I will tell you what I like best about that seal. If you close your left eye and squint really hard and tilt your head just so, it reads a lot like president of the United States. <laughs> that was something Al Gore used to say. And that was a complete lift from Vice President Gore and always got a great reaction. <laughs> that's what I was hoping for. Yes, that's absolutely right. And, and Gore also... Uh, had a great sort of dry sense of self-awareness and something he liked to do a lot and still is say something that was right on the edge of something odd that he might actually say to test the room of usually close advisors and friends and see if people got that he was joking or not. (laughs) And sometimes they're, you know, he was really into some weird policy issues that he loved to talk about, you know, that were not really politically beneficial issues, let's say, like chaos theory and massive parallel computing and things that were just very wonky and and stuff that he loved to read about. And, you know, he'd be the sort of person to say um, in this speech, I should talk about massive parallel computing. And there'd be an uncomfortable pause in the room because people weren't sure if they had to now start trying to talk him out of it. And then he'd burst into hysterical laughter. And then sometimes he'd mean it. So (laughs) he always kept you on your toes, but he was completely aware that he was doing that. He was hilarious and a lot of fun, actually, in that way. But, you know, when I watched Fredonia the other night, I was thinking to myself, like, wow, there's a pretty brittle relationship here between Santos and Josh at times. They really are kicking each other's tires. It's a continuation of what started in opposition research. And I realized that that did come from my observation of some failed staff vice president relationships, some people in Gore's life who had tried to push him around and get him to do things he didn't want to do because they thought they knew better, only to learn that it just wasn't who he was. And um, Josh, to his credit, of course, learns. Well, so at the beginning of this episode, we start with Santos talking to a crowd, but then we, we go to Russell at this politics and eggs forum, which is a real thing that happens in New Hampshire. You ever tried signing a wooden egg? Yes. It's not only a real thing, they really give out these little wooden eggs. I think I have a couple in a drawer somewhere and people really sign the eggs. And it's just one of these events that's a kind of a New Hampshire institution. It's funny because it only started in 1996, I think. So at the time when you were working on presidential campaigns, it still must have been a relatively new phenomenon. Well, that's news to me, which shows how established it must have been by the year 2000 that uh, when Gore went, I just completely took it for granted that this thing had been happening since the days of, you know, Daniel Webster. Uh, And I think that's that's the trick with a lot of these early states, Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina, is that, um, you know, you want to kind of start your breakfast series for candidates and have people think it's something you can't miss. So there's probably a lot of that going on. With such a baffo name, like politics and eggs, I don't know how you can miss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The name makes me laugh. Like it's crying out for some sort of, you know, folks and yokes, just nothing. Politics and eggs. <laughs> well, you know, I have a memory of sitting in 
my old apartment, actually, the apartment I lived in when I first moved to LA and sitting at the little dining room table writing that scene with Will and Donna and Bob Russell talking about signing the eggs and the little wooden pieces of toast. And, you know, it was one of the things that I, I always found when I was working for Aaron in the Aaron era of the West Wing was sometimes he would come into the writer's room and he would just want a weird line that was going to be in a press release that people were going to comment on, or he would want just one item that, you know, Donna found in a box of files. And if you came up with something weird enough and pleasing enough, Aaron would go off and write a whole great scene just around that, you know, and he'd come back into the writer's room and say how great the one line you gave him was. And um, politics and eggs, I think, is a little bit that. Right. It's just such a kind of a juicy, odd little concept in and of itself that it pretty much gave me that whole scene. Here's a perhaps vain thing that I noticed as Will and Donna are watching Russell at the Politics and Eggs event is that uh, the West Wing, apparently for me, was pre-Invisalign. And I have a very prominent snaggletooth that I've not noticed prior to this that I would eventually correct. I'll put a picture up because, man, oh, man, I got one tooth that's just dying to go perpendicular. I also want to thank Eli for earlier finally acknowledging that the character of Russell was devised as something of a punchline, and therefore it can be acknowledged that Will Bailey was assigned to run the campaign of a punchline. Well, <laughs> It's not my fault, people. No, but here's the thing. I, because as you guys know, you know, an episode that, that I wrote, but that, you know, to some degree we conceptualized as a group, you know, under John Wells' direction, you know, the episode Constituency of One, where Josh is actually kind of seduced to go work for Bob Russell. I think you learn in that episode that Russell's got a few things going on that most people don't see and that he is very self-aware. That's a scene in which he tells the jokes that people tell about him. And he gives Will a very compelling, you know, reason to sort of switch sides, as it were. I think he may have been devised as a, as a bit of a punchline and discovered as something more. And by Will, too. I've always defended Will for seeing a little bit, a greater intellect in uh, Bingo Bob than most others have seen. But then a few episodes ago, we have Will coming into Leo's office and saying, uh, why did you guys pick Russell? <laughs> yes. They don't come up with much. Right. I mean, you know, there's also the simple reality, which is not inconsiderable, that it gives Will a bigger role in politics. You know, he gets to advocate issues and um, play a big role in this game. And um, that's part of what a career is about, too. Absolutely. It sort of revealed Will Bailey to be more of a pragmatist than a classic Sorkin idealist. Yeah. And there's a lot. There's so much of that in politics because there aren't always Kennedy-esque romantic idealist candidates. Or sometimes they are and they get crushed like a grape by the guy who's virtually the incumbent. There are people, I think it's unfair, but there are people who would have looked at Gore that way as a, as a guy who just was sort of next in line as the sitting vice president. I think I talked about this on an earlier podcast. You know, I had worked for Dick Gephardt on Capitol Hill, and I had relationships with a number of other people who were looking at running in the year 2000. Some might have looked at some of them as maybe more inspiring in one way or another. And I liked Gore a lot, and I always had. But, I mean, it was clear to me Gore was going to be the nominee. And that if I went to work for anybody else, I was just going to be engaged in the exercise of taking down the eventual nominee hmm. as opposed to 
you know, helping him and trying to make him be as good as he could be. And uh, I think that's what Will chose to do. And I think he he was right to do it. He couldn't have foreseen the Obama-like, you know, rise out of nowhere of this unknown Matt Santos. And nobody could have foreseen that. So you're saying Will Bailey being the character perhaps most closely associated with you probably falls somewhere in the pragmatist idealist spectrum where you fall. I think that's right. I mean, look, you're always in politics, I believe, wanting to be an idealist. You're always wanting to fall in love, in a sense, with the people you work for and be part of something greater than yourself. But if you're wanting to work steadily and be relevant and um, not just kind of tilt at windmills, sometimes you just have to, you know, calculate who's going to be standing at the end of a rough contest. And, you know, you're, you're often wrong about that. I think it was Harold Ickes, who was uh, one of Clinton's deputy chiefs of staff, who said that... Um, politics kind of required equal parts cynicism and idealism. You know, you sort of had to have this capacity to believe, but you also needed to understand brass tacks. And um, I don't think there's any successful operative who doesn't have a bit of both Hmm. in the real world. Well said. There's definitely a, a mix of cynicism and idealism that's at work with Josh here in his drive to figure out what they're gonna do for the ad. We find out that between Hoynes and Russell, they're both involved in a huge media blitz in the New Hampshire market. They're each spending 1,800 points. Not that I know what that means, but it sounds like a lot. Yeah. And the Santos campaign can't compete at all. And so Josh has the idea that they need to just have one Hail Mary pass and bet it all on that. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I don't even, it's funny, it's been so long. I don't even really remember what 1800 points means, but it's some kind of a measure of how many times the average viewer would see an ad in the window in which it's broadcast. It wouldn't be 1800 times, but, um, this is a concept that's existed for a long time. It was definitely on my mind, you know, when I was working on this script, which, um, a lot of people have done in politics, either accidentally or on purpose. When Paul Wellstone, the, the late Paul Wellstone, Senator from Minnesota, first ran for the Senate from Minnesota, he didn't have a lot of money. Uh, He was a professor at Carleton College and kind of an unlikely politician. And he was, I guess, trying to debate his opponent, who was the incumbent senator, and couldn't even get in a room with him. And he did an ad in the style of the old uh, Michael Moore movie, Roger and Me, where he was wandering around I guess Minneapolis or something, searching for his opponent. First, I tried his campaign headquarters. Let me give you my home phone number, too, okay? Sure. It was a funny, disarming ad that was just, you know, so surprising that, I mean, I saw it a bunch of times living in Washington, D.C. You know, it was just one of these things that was everywhere, and he could have put a million dollars behind it and not gotten that much attention. So, um... It's hard to calculate that. It's hard to plan that. Would the ad that Josh showed in the end have gotten that kind of free media? Probably not. But it's a hard thing to contrive. They work best when they happen organically, which I think is one of the other lessons of the episode. That's what I I love about that, that mix of cynicism and idealism. This idea, there's something very idealistic about the possibility that you could craft a message that's so compelling that people are going to want to play it for free. But there's also something kind of really calculating about the idea of we're going to figure out what that one thing is and cash in our chips on that. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, you could say that this is Santos and Josh coming together in the end because Santos is, he's trying to find his voice. He's trying to identify who he is to himself and, you know, what he ultimately comes up with for that sort of uh, live on the spot silver bullet ad is also an attempt to get lots of press as much as it's a statement of, of his beliefs. 
Do we believe that anyone stayed up all night in an edit bay intercutting the shots of chickens with shots of the other candidates? <laughs> <laughs> I certainly didn't. No, I, I, it wasn't. I was looking at that ad when I watched the, uh, the show and thinking, uh, you know, we could have done better than that, probably. I mean, I'm sure it was my idea. Not trying to take a shot here. I'm just saying. No, maybe, no. But maybe I think it's uh, Josh Lyman. Maybe that's not his forte. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Editing, not his forte. My favorite part, though, is the moment before we ever see the ad where Josh just has the idea. Josh, you and I have talked about this before. One of my favorite things from South Park, the gnomes underwear stealing scheme. <laughs> right. Yes. Step one is steal underwear. Step two is question mark, question mark, question mark. And step three is profit. I feel like <laughs> that's what we have here when he presents this to this idea to Santos. Step one, one minute that is so gutsy, so edgy, so different yeah. that it'll be replayed for free on every newscast in the country. Step two, what's the actual ad? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Step three, become president. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I know it sounds bizarre and it was obviously played for a little bit of humor and absurdity in the episode, you know, but it's, it's, you'd be surprised how realistic that is. People are so hyper aware in politics, candidates, staff of what the history is of successful campaigns. And well, here was this silver bullet ad or here was this gutsy moment where you stood up to a foreign leader, you know, or here's the you know moment in a debate where you walked out from behind the podium. And then, you know, for the next 20 years, people are, are engaged in kind of ham handed attempts to replicate those moments. And the the thing is, Something Ron McLean, frequent guest of the podcast, always said to me is that people always think that every presidential year is going to be like a previous presidential year. The discussion of crafting a political ad that would go viral put me in mind of MJ Hagar. She was the Air Force veteran who ran in the midterms for a seat in Congress in Texas. I think ended up losing by a very small margin, but she created almost a short film that detailed her military background and her childhood. Two army helicopters rescued us from the wreckage. I strapped myself to the skids and returned fire on the Taliban while we flew to safety. That got me a purple heart and I became the second woman ever awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross with Valor. But after that, the door closed. Injured and unable to fly, I was barred from my next career choice because I was a woman. It's an incredible little piece, and it became viral. People started tweeting it and sharing it, and it's sort of exactly what these guys were after in this episode. Yeah, it has three million views on YouTube right now. Right. I mean, this episode preceded the whole concept of viral videos because, of course, it was uh, well, it was probably about a year after YouTube was created. But right. But I think we're still in the same place now, where actually, believe it or not. TV ads broadcast on TV are still very important in campaigns because a lot of people, particularly the more reliable older voters, um, they watch a lot of TV and it's still the best way to reach people. But if you can get something not even covered in the media anymore, but just shared on Facebook and on Twitter and um, get something to go viral, it's just always going to be an amount of attention that you could never afford on your own. Yeah. This is why you can get somebody like Pete Buttigieg to come on and talk to Rishi on our podcast. <laughs> you never know. No, truly, though. True. I mean it. it, it, it there, there are new free ways to reach eyes and ears. In the current campaign cycle, he is the person who I think has benefited from that most in terms of a gap in resources, but then making up for it with these moments like when Anand Giridharadas shared that story about introducing Pete Buttigieg to a Norwegian 
reporter and then people yes, right. just started speaking in Norwegian. And then that story, you know, just that, that tweet just went crazy. And then it generated its own news cycle on its own. You know, this story about Pete Buttigieg speaking Norwegian and he didn't have to pay anything for that. We're definitely sort of reaching, it's, you could almost say that social media is its own early state primary now. Huh. Because, you know, Iowa used to serve that function, I mean, back in the 70s and 80s, you know, where it would be a small town where spontaneous things could happen and hopefully get picked up by the national media or your showing in a state like that could propel you, you know, into the um, sort of national conversation. And now that can happen on Instagram. It can happen on Facebook. I feel like Twitter should get one electoral vote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do. They have one, but it belongs to Russia. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to mention this one moment as we're working our way through the, the episode. In the next scene, when they're at the Santos headquarters, and Josh and Santos are talking about whether or not he ought to sue his way into the debate. As they're talking, Santos is throwing darts at a dartboard. And I remember what Tommy Shlami had told us ages ago, you know, that, that his job was to try and figure out a way to do something with the characters while they're talking, you know, that part of the reason for the walk and talk and all these moves is because you couldn't just have the characters talking, they had to be doing something. And I love that moment because it felt so real. It felt like, yeah, this is how he's working out his thought process as he's in conversation. But as I was watching it, I, I couldn't help but feel the Tommy Shlami DNA in that scene. Yeah, for sure. Look, I mean, even if Tommy had simply directed the pilot and then walked away from the show, I think, you know, and this was something that I believe Tommy took from ER to some degree, which he had worked on a lot as, a, as an episodic director, you know, the show that John Wells really created, which is how do you show dynamism and movement in a world of static meetings with people in suits? And, um, you know, it's why the West Wing set itself, you know, had glass walls, unlike the real West Wing and a, and a, and a lot of what they call throw, meaning how far back could you see from the action, which is mm -hmm. also unlike the real West Wing. And I think that just became the template. People walking around, people crumpling up pieces of paper or throwing a, a spalding, you know, ball against a wall. All of that is, is a way to kind of get out of people's mouths and heads. And I think we were always looking for that, sometimes written in stage directions, sometimes found on the day. But you're 100% right. As far as Russell being a joke, I do like uh, the idea that he thinks that there must have been a head dwarf. What about his nutty debate rules? We want the seven dwarves to be able to take direct shots at me? You realize you're one of the dwarves. There are only seven candidates. Well, there must have been a head dwarf. Had the Snow White. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's and this was a little thing I, I guess I had tried to have fun with in the episode that I believe was a reference to maybe the 1988 campaign cycle. I think that was a year where the Democratic field in, at one point was referred to as the seven dwarves, you know, mm. just the belief that nobody really had risen up to have any great stature. And um, I like the idea that this, this was really stuck in. Josh's craw in particular, and then you learn later that it's something that Amy Gardner had said. I love that. Yeah, we hear it being said by both people on the Santos side and on the Russell side, that it's really like a phrase that's out there and, and people are using it. And then we've discovered that she's the one who coined it. And it's so belittling that you figure if you're the incumbent vice president, and you're being told that you're a dwarf. I mean, I think that scene you know, was really just how do you react to being called not just a dwarf, but one of the one of the throng of dwarves? I mean, mm -hmm. it's, can you think of anything more demeaning? By the way, the proper plural form of dwarf is dwarfs. It was J.R.R. Tolkien who popularized dwarves. Interesting. 
Interesting. Or maybe it isn't, but I felt I had to share. <laughs> we were very untokenesque in this one. It's true for elves also. Really? Ah, a lot of outrage in the elf community over Tolkien's popularization of the term elves. I know Tol- Tolkien also <laughs> popularized milves. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of outrage <laughs> in the milf community. <laughs> so, Eli, can you tell us about the decision to bring Amy Gardner back for this episode? Yeah. You know, I think she's an incredible actor and an extraordinary person and uh, was sort of a big fan of hers on the West Wing. You know, and in between uh, Constituency of One and Fredonia, she had um, had a baby and she lived in New York and she wasn't somebody who was available to be on the show all the time. But I definitely pitched the idea of bringing her back as a kind of a surprise advisor to Santos just because I thought she was so great and, um, you know, wanted to see her on the show. And I think... I had so much reverence for the character of Amy Gardner that Aaron created, and I just thought she was such a rock star character that it was really fun to write that character for me. And you and she have become close friends, yes? Yes, indeed. Not only are, are we close friends, she actually officiated my little wedding ceremony. Indeed. Um, so she's played a very special role in my life. But we're pals. But at that time, I, I wasn't a close friend of hers. I was just an admirer and knew her a bit. I remember thinking a lot about... Well, how do we introduce her? She hasn't been on the show for over a year. You know, it's, it's, of course, she's in the opening credits, which when I was watching it the other night, I thought, you know, if we'd been clever, we would have kept her out of the opening credits to have it be more of a surprise. But I thought a lot about the moment when we first would meet her. And that's how it became this idea of it's freezing cold outside and everybody's shivering. And then you walk inside and she's eating ice cream. I luxuriate in the cold. Can I ask you? I fight cold with more cold. I'll admit to being a little put off by that scene because so closely on the heels of Will Bailey's unrequited love for ice cream to see Amy consummate was, uh, <laughs> was upsetting. It was a little upsetting. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, well, I will point out that uh, this episode and Opposition Research were both written before King Corn was written. Ah, OK, fair enough. Even though King Corn aired in the middle, you know, John Wells had sort of sent me off to write these two episodes that would be largely about Santos, as King Corn was also, but would be shot together in Toronto, which King Corn was, too. So I, I plead ignorance of Will's uh, ice cream infatuation. Fair enough. I forget that in the post-Sorkin years, things might have been written outside of the order in which they were aired. You know, in Aaron's days, he was always just trying to get to the finish line of the next episode. Yeah. And I guess there was a bit of a, a, a different approach. I love this scene where you reintroduce uh, Mary Louise Parker as Amy Gardner because of her performance. It is such a fraught moment because here they are. It's a reunion of sorts between these two characters. And what I I love is the moments in which she chooses to look at Brad. There aren't a lot in those first lines of dialogue. You know, he sees her and he says hello. And for the most part, she barely looks at him. She's looking either at the ice cream cone or she's looking at her phone. I noticed that too. Uh, It's so great. It's such an incredible assertion of like the power dynamic, you know, wordlessly while they're having their conversation. You know, as a writer, you sit down and you figure out what you think the words of the scene are and what the scene is about. And, you know, nine out of 10 times you're on a set and that's what you're trying to get with the actors. And what is so fantastic about somebody like Mary Louise is that she gives you something 
that honors what you've written. She's saying the words you've written, but she gives you something completely different that works, that is deeper, that is surprising. So really when you watch the scene, that's the whole scene is basically her sort of indifference right. or flirtation yeah. or manipulation to Brad. And it's all those things wrapped together. And it really doesn't matter what the words are. The scene is about this kind of space between them. And that's not something that I wrote. And it's not something that I envisioned. And I remember as if it were yesterday, you know, being on that set in Canada when we filmed that scene and she was just so great. And that's what she always did. She would do something you didn't imagine. Hat tip to uh, Chris Misiano, too. Absolutely. He did a great job on this. And Bradley Whitford, too, because he's he's giving her the exact opposite. He's looking at her like there's a fox in the hen house. He's laser focused on her and, and taken aback. What are you doing in New Hampshire? Of course, she knows that she's going to be the one who's showing up, but he doesn't know. And the differential between their reactions to the other one is just really lovely. Yeah, he's great in this episode and I think in this whole storyline because you see him, I think, trying to become somebody a bit different, you know, than he was as simply Bartlett's kind of junior lieutenant, if you will. One thing that I, I remember really <laughs> vividly about this episode, I don't know that I, as a writer before this, had ever really, you know, been there for the filming of a scene with a lot of food in it. So Mary Louise has Rocky Road ice cream, which was written into the script. I think I asked her if she was okay with that flavor, you know, because um, obviously she was going to have to have some of it. But we started doing takes of the scene. And, and the West Wing, as Josh knows well, you know, we do a lot of takes because the actors really wanted to get it right and would just go deeper into it. And it was not a, a rushed situation usually. And take one, take two, she's, she's having half that ice cream cone. <laughs> And I was starting to get concerned because it was a few takes in and she'd had a fair amount of ice cream. And I remember walking up to her saying, are you okay? Like you're having a lot of, a lot of ice cream. And she said something to me like, yeah, actually I feel like I'm a little bit sick. And <laughs> but she didn't look it. And I said, well, maybe you should take um, smaller bites. And she said, no, that's not what Amy would do. <laughs> and then, you know, I went back, I, she was saying that right as they were about to roll another take. So I watched her do this a couple more times. And then I went over trying to be so incredibly helpful to the actor. And I said, uh, what if Amy just had a really big lunch and she really just wanted a bite or two of ice cream? And she just gave me this look that was like, yeah, nice try. <laughs> and she ate a ton of ice cream. Yeah, these are real things to be considered during uh, food scenes. The usual approach is, as you say, either to eat just a modicum of what you're eating. But if the scene calls for some sort of hearty eating, often as soon as cut is yelled, you just spit into some sort of garbage bin. There's a lot of eating and spitting and getting rid of it. I, I filmed a scene in Bullworth where Warren Beatty wanted us all to be ravenously consuming Chinese food, I think, oh late God. at night. And... I was really hungry, so I kept trying to actually swallow <laughs> the food. And Warren himself kept running over with the paper bag and saying, spit it out. you got to look hungry. <laughs> and was that wise that he did that? Uh, yeah, it was because I was going to fill up in the first few takes. And Warren Beatty liked to do like 50 takes. So it was crazy. <laughs> wow. Okay, let's take a quick break for some ads. And when we come back, we'll talk more with Eli Addy. Since our very first episode, the West Wing Weekly has been brought to you by Squarespace. What a great sponsor, and a sponsor whose service we use. Squarespace is the best way to create a website for your podcast, in our case, or for your business, or your art, 
or whatever you want to showcase online. Whatever you do, you can put it out into the world with Squarespace. You can showcase your work. You can sell your products and services. You can promote your physical or online business. When we first set up the West Wing Weekly Squarespace site, it actually looked pretty different from the way the site looks right now. We set it up, we launched the site, we launched the podcast, we were ready to go. And about three days after that, I realized I wanted to change the colors, I wanted to change some of the formatting, and Squarespace made it super easy to do that. I just went in, changed a couple of things, including some custom CSS that I wanted to add, and Squarespace makes it easy to do that. But even if you don't know about custom CSS, you can just use one of their beautiful templates. It's so easy to use, even Josh edits our website sometimes. That's right. So check out thewestwingweekly.com, get some inspiration, and then go make your website with Squarespace. Check out squarespace.com slash westwing for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, you can use the offer code westwing to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Joshy. Yes. Don't be scared. Why what? Now I am. Don't be scared because there's a way for you to get exceptional home security. Thanks to one of our sponsors, Simply Safe. Right on. Tell me about Simply Safe, Rishi. It's an award-winning security system that offers 24/7 protection for your entire house. That's good because I don't like there to be safe zones and scary zones in my house. I want the whole thing protected. Well, The Verge says this is the best home security, and it won Reader's Choice from PC Magazine. I've also been told it's the two-time winner of CNET's Editor's Choice. That's true. So it's a, I guess, by pretty much unanimous acclaim. It's the company to go to for security. And you can get a 60-day risk-free trial. So really, I mean, you shouldn't even be scared about trying it. That's two free months of not being scared. I've never gone two months without fear. <laughs> well, order now and have your home protected within a week at simplysafe.com slash westwing. That's simplysafe.com slash westwing. Make sure to use that URL so they know that we sent you. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by The Real Real the leading reseller of authenticated luxury from top designers. Actually, my wife, Lindsay, loves The Real Real, and she's a fashion designer, so she knows what's up. You know, I'm going to call her. Hey, what did you buy most recently from The Real Real? I bought a pair of suede kitten heel mules. Kitten heel mules. That's a lot of animals for one pair of shoes. Uh-huh. And were they designer? They were designer. They're Ferragamo shoes, and they were, I think, $50. And those are normally like $600 shoes. Mm-hmm. And they had been worn maybe once or twice, but they were basically like new. So check out The Real Real, where you can shop and consign women's and men's luxury fashion, as well as fine jewelry, watches, art, and home items. Shop in-store, online, or download the app and get 20% off select items with the promo code REAL. That's The Real Real, and the promo code is REAL for 20% off select items. Okay, thanks, Lindsay. Okay, if you want, you can say, like, my wife who works in fashion and... Oh, thank you. I mean, I talk about you all the time without your permission, so thank you for that. <laughs> okay. I, and I, in fact, I already said that on this earlier. Okay. All right. Okay, bye. Okay. And now back to the show and our guest, Eli Addy. Back to this ice cream scene. Eli, I think you said that this is a favorite scene of Mary Louise Parker's dad's. Yeah. I just texted her earlier today and said, I'm about to, you know, go on the Western podcast to talk about this episode. And do you have any memories of, of it or of that ice cream scene? Because she and I had talked about it a bunch over the years and she texted me back. It was my dad's favorite and he used to quote it. And then she also wrote, after we shot it, Brad and I went to have steak because we both felt we needed something dripping with blood. <laughs> 
That's very funny. By the way, to the many uh, listeners who have asked when we're going to have her on the show, we are in intense negotiations with her. She seems to have, she seems to be both drawn to the idea and repelled by it. No, she wants to do it. She wants to do it. I have a question about Amy's uh, actions in this episode. First, we discover that she is the pro that Santos has brought in to prepare him for the debates. And then we discover that she has fed information and some talking points to all the candidates. And subsequent to that, we find out that Santos himself knew about this. So is that something that would be common or would that be considered dirty pool? Or are there people who are just trying to reach out to the entire field and get their message across? It is common in the sense that there are, you know, people who might be heads of labor unions, heads of prominent women's groups like Amy Gardner, who would issue almost a semi-public memo to all the campaigns saying, we've done some polling, we've done some focus groups, and here are some ways to talk about a woman's right to choose, and here are some things we think should be part of the discussion. Very often those memos are released to the press, and then there are articles written about them, and it's just a way of kind of joining the conversation. But there definitely are not just groups, but individuals who are prominent in democratic politics, as the character of Amy is, who talk to all the campaigns and they'll be open about it. And they'll say, I'm not choosing a side here and I'm going to give you advice, but I'm, you know, if uh, Hollings picks up a phone and calls me, I'm going to give him the same advice. And um, there isn't anything unusual about it if you know it. And really, I think in my mind, I don't know how much this landed, but I think part of the story here is that Josh is so suspicious of Amy. And to some degree, he's still a little bit suspicious of Santos, who doesn't seem to always be taking Josh's advice, that Josh doesn't realize that this is something Santos knew from the beginning. I knew she was advising everyone. That's why I didn't tell you. You think I care about your dating life? And Josh made a little bit too much out of it, which is why in the end, he kind of apologizes. There's also you know, obviously personal feeling between them. And he ends up saying to Santos, you know, she can stick around if she wants to, which she doesn't. Right. But, um, you know, I think when you're in a campaign, there's a lot of paranoia. There's a lot of suspicion. Look, Matt, Amy, it's That's for sure. and the question may be with us, really hard out there. We get people lobbing grenades at us from all sides, even our friends. He's basically apologizing for being paranoid, you know, and I think that's, Common. One thing I found looking through some notes of mine for this episode that I still miraculously had on my on a hard drive is that when I was trying to first just get my head around story ideas for this episode, I was playing around with the idea of there being a mole in the Santos campaign hmm. from one of the other campaigns. And that idea fell out. And I have a feeling it fell out because John Wells, who was such a smart guide and teacher and boss and head writer of the show, always... I don't remember this specifically, but I'm quite sure that's something he would have said. You don't need a ham-handed plot device like that. You don't need it. Just tell the stories the way you want to tell them. And the much more grounded, subtle version of that is simply someone comes in from the outside to advise your candidate and you don't know completely if you can trust them or what they've said to who. <laughs> and suddenly you get everything you wanted to get. It's just not an episode of, you know, House of Cards. What I love about The West Wing is that these are your motivations and what you're trying to accomplish in terms of the narrative, but what it's wrapped in is also so interesting. You know, she's coming in and advising them specifically on their talking points around the sale of nuclear arms from Pakistan right. to Nigeria. 
And I, when I was researching stuff for this episode, I found in 2000, the security resolution that was passed by the UN, it was security resolution 1325. It's the resolution on women, peace and security. And Hoyne says to Josh, you know, the thing that Amy is advising them all on is security as the new women's issue. Yeah. And I thought that was such a smart, interesting idea. And so that that's what got me sort of looking into this. And I just wanted to read a little bit about that resolution. I'm reading this from the United States Institute of Peace. It says that this resolution specifically addresses how women and girls are differentially impacted by conflict and war. And it recognizes the critical role that women can and already do play in peacebuilding efforts. UNSCR 1325 affirms that peace and security efforts are more sustainable when women are equal partners in the prevention of violent conflict, the delivery of relief and recovery efforts, and in the forging of lasting peace. Was that something that you were pulling from? It was. And, you know, I had read some, you know, a handful of things just on my own in the preceding handful of years about security as a women's issue. And I just thought it was interesting. And we tend to think of women's groups as mostly dealing with the softer so-called mommy issues, you know, uh, choice and healthcare and daycare and childcare. And in fact, a lot of prominent sort of women's rights advocates, you know, were just as uh, enmeshed in foreign policy and in keeping women free from their villages being bombed around the world. We'll put up this link on the website, a link to the Council on Foreign Relations that explains a little bit more about this 2017 piece of legislation, the Women, Peace, and Security Act of, of 2017. There's actually a U.S. law that's a bipartisan act that says it will strengthen efforts to prevent conflict and mitigate conflict by increasing women's participation in the negotiation and mediation processes. But so the security stuff is really just one part. There's this whole other component to what she's advising the Santos campaign on, which is more like polish and delivery, which she calls the presidential voice. Yes. Would you normally, in fact, have specialists? You know, you've got people who do policy and people who do performance at debates. There are both kinds of people. You know, when I was working for Gore, you know, we would sort of have in the room for debate prep sessions, there'd be people like me. I was a speechwriter, you know, more of a communications person. There would be policy experts, you know, on foreign policy, on domestic policy. And then there would be people who were solely performance focused. The concept of the presidential voice is actually something I encountered working in the White House and you're working for a House member, you're just trying to get quoted in the New York Times or the Washington Post or your hometown paper. And the way you get quoted out of, you know, the 80 people who make a comment on the exact same issue is having a punchy, sassy soundbite that may have a little pop culture reference in it. It may have like a, a you know, maybe a quip that sort of borrows something from the last Star Wars movie. And, you know, when I went to work in the White House, I remember talking to Clinton's chief speechwriter, a guy named Michael Waldman, and he was saying, yeah, we don't do any of that here. And in fact, I remember thinking that Clinton's speeches when I was working in the White House seemed so plain and unadorned and unrhetorical. I remember thinking at first, you know, they could kind of spice it up a bit. I think they should. And I remember him explaining to me that everything the president says is quoted. It'll be quoted because he's the president. So you don't use a lot of adjectives. You, you don't push it. You don't use pop culture references. You, you just, he said there's almost a sonorousness to the presidential voice. It should almost sound like the Federal Register, almost hmm. like a boilerplate lease. That's interesting. It has its own authority. And, and it's, it, there's something great about that in that you don't have to try too hard. You don't have to try at all. You're the president. That's it. You just have that authority. You could say the whole episode, it could have easily been called the presidential voice. The whole episode is 
Matt Santos struggling to find his voice, his way to be himself and not compromise who he is while going through this crazy steeplechase of demands. It's really fascinating about the that it was, in fact, the Clinton White House where you heard that, because I want to switch gears for a second to talk about about the chickens, Chicken Bob and Chicken John. <laughs> Here's a little bit from the New York Times article in September of 1992. I'm going to read a little bit. Traditional field operations hold as their core duty the identification and motivation of specific voters and subgroups of voters. The Clinton state-by-state strategy is based on the theory that the key to victory is not this at all, but rather an aggressive effort to manipulate local television. In this campaign, we have a GOTV program, but it doesn't mean get out the vote. It means get on TV. It's a very, very heavy media operation, and in this way, it mirrors the national drive. And they said in every state, there are two or three staffers whose whole job is to get on TV. We don't evaluate our people on the ground by how many voter ID calls they make. We evaluate them by how they do in media placement each day. Did you get on TV? Did you make the front page? What was the tone of the coverage? And that for getting on television, nothing beats Chicken George. They estimated that 15 to 20 of these Chicken Georges have succeeded in getting into Bush rallies and onto local and even national television. It's the complete opposite strategy, right? That's right. This is before he was president, where they're just throwing these chickens. So let's talk about that. The chicken suit stuff in this episode is inspired by real life events. Yes, entirely lifted from real life events. But, you know, before talking about that, what you're saying is so important. The exercise that uh, Josh is engaged in in this episode and Ned and Rana under him is exactly that, trying to get on TV, just trying to throw points on the board to be as extreme as possible, to use chickens, to use you know banjo music, anything, it doesn't matter if it's undignified, get on TV by all means possible. Clinton, when he was elected, I think had a tough pivot to the presidential voice and to a presidential bearing because, you know, for his time, he was the first baby boomer president. He was seen as very young. And his first two years in the White House, he would talk to any reporter nonstop and give endless interviews and be in staff meetings until midnight and was kind of unavoidable for comment and would give three press conferences a day. And it wasn't until probably sometime in his second year when David Gergen, who was a much more seasoned uh, communications hand from actually the Reagan White House, and he'd worked for Jerry Ford, came in as a sort of a centrist, you know, guy who probably had changed parties at that point, and basically said, you have to slow down, you have to back up, you have to not push so hard. And Clinton coming to that realization on his own and the people around him. So not needing to put on a chicken outfit to get on the news was something that had to dawn on the Clinton team slowly. Hmm. And it's why he had such a much more successful second half of his first term. He stopped trying so hard. He, he stopped putting on, I remember in his first couple of years as president, he used to sometimes wear like neckties with smiley faces on them that were like fun baby boomer neckties. That all went out the window when he realized, I just don't seem presidential. And uh, he, he started to just dress and act and speak much more like the Federal Register, quite frankly. But um, Chicken George is something that I've always loved. It was in both of the Democratic campaigns against Bush's. But really, the basis of the story in Fredonia is something that really happened when George H.W. Bush was running against Bill Clinton. He was refusing to debate Clinton, and I guess Ross Perot also, or maybe he was saying he would only debate Clinton if Perot wasn't in the debate. It was something like that. And they had people all over the place in these Chicken George outfits. And one of them managed to get right into a Bush event. He was not kept out, which he should have been, because he told the people at the door, the dumb uh, Bush campaign staffers at the door, I'm here from the State Poultry Growers Association. (laughs) So they let him in. 
he got all the way to the front row. Nobody seemed to bat an eye. And in the episode, I have I have this guy just kind of walking by as you know Will and Donna are engaged in a conversation and not noticing. But this guy gets all the way up to the front and starts heckling George H.W. Bush in the middle of his speech. And one of the greatest mistakes of his career, then President Bush started debating the chicken from the stage. You don't engage a chicken. Didn't you teach that girl not to engage a chicken? Because, you know, nothing is as unpresidential as debating a chicken. I have a distinct memory of uh, shooting that scene at the hockey rink because I think it just, for whatever reason, took a really long time. Maybe it was late at night. I remember being really, really tired. And whenever I felt sorry for myself, I just reminded myself that, one, I wasn't playing hockey for hours. And two, I wasn't in the chicken suit. <laughs> <laughs> One thing we skipped over was uh, the scene earlier where Will asks Donna to dinner. Yes. You need to work up some Q&A for the two-man debate. Want to grab dinner later? Are you asking me to dinner? Yeah, dinner four nights in a row. But you never asked me. We just went. Who else am I going to have dinner with? Everyone else in this campaign is 14 years old and irons are blue jeans. Fine. So you want to grab dinner later? Sure. Yeah, you didn't do me any favors there. If well, people didn't like me already. Well, this is the interesting thing, which is I realized watching the episode, having not thought about this in all the intervening years, uh, this wasn't something that I really discussed with the writer's room. Big character moves we would always talk about as a group. And of course, everyone on the staff would read everyone's drafts and weigh in and give notes and thoughts. I just stuck that in the script. And I guess John Wells liked it or didn't dislike it and left it in the script. I was actually trying to begin a flirtation between them, you know, and, and I thought maybe that was something that would kind of evolve from there. Potentially they're working closely together. Donna, he's treating her like an adult, you know, as Josh, you know, Lyman never did. And two things. One is watching it. It didn't feel like you guys played the romance of it particularly. And then no one really picked up on it on the writing staff. So it was just, you know, I think two episodes later, Josh, Melina, and Mary McCormick's character were, were flirting, and that became more of a thing. So this was just me planting a seed that never blossomed. Yeah, I, I sense that that seed was there in the script, but I will say for my part, I can't speak for Janelle, uh, I don't remember ever discussing it explicitly with anyone, but I definitely decided that Will just wanted to have dinner. Oh, interesting. <laughs> that was interesting. definitely my approach. I was like, I'm not going there. I don't buy it. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things. I must not have been there that day that it was filmed. And who knows? Maybe I was and I just don't remember because I think I would have at least said, let's try a version where we see if there's anything there. But maybe it wouldn't have worked and maybe it was fine as it is. I mean, regardless, if you want to search for message boards from 14 years ago, you will find people who are annoyed at Will about it. <laughs> well, oh, no, I don't think so. You know, when you have talented actors, you kind of throw these little things in that can play any number of ways. And, and uh, so, sometimes there's a lot of value in, you know, letting the actors do what feels right and just leaving it at that. Also, he's got a cute little snaggle tooth. <laughs> he does. But also, you know, I think Will was, you know, especially in these later seasons of the show, a conflict character, frankly. He's there. He's switched sides. He's kind of running against, so is Donna at this point, but he's running against our old team. He's maybe, you know, if you believe those five little lines in this episode, maybe he's going to try to get in between Josh Lyman and Donna Moss. And so there's so much dramatic value in that, but of course it, it, it earns you uh, some knocks on the message boards for sure. I'm the fly in the ointment. So be it. <laughs> I like this dynamic and the way it plays out from beginning to end of this episode, because I do think that it sort of comes 
I think it does resolve by the end. And in this moment, I think you're both right. You know, I think that ultimately there is something flirty about it. And also there isn't really, there isn't much heat on it. But to me, I read it as Will is trying to flirt with Donna, but in this way that is like really just what else are you going to do? You know, we are kind of our only other option if we want to do anything at all that's not the campaign that's at, at all social. And yeah, we've had dinner every night and, and we're coworkers and friends, but maybe there's something here, you know, just like we'll throw it out there. Yes, for sure. But without like a lot of English on it. And she's like, what? And he, she's not picking it up at all. And he's like, all right. And that exchange is done with no feeling of flirtation, I thought. And it was like, it really was just like, eh, me? No? Okay, fine. <laughs> Well, He's preserving right. plausible deniability. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and also, it's funny, I was just thinking to myself, having just watched the season premiere of Veep, this is the sort of thing where on Veep, they would do that exact exchange, except it would basically be like, do you want to have sex? Well, you know, who else am I going to have sex with? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, this is the, this is the, uh, the Capra-esque version of that. Right. Now, Will's just thinking, is there an ice cream machine at my hotel? <laughs> <laughs> How do I get some of that? <laughs> The only scene that I think had even more tension than than that dinner scene between characters is my one of my favorite scenes in this whole episode, which is uh, when Russell and Santos go in to the Dover Herald's office to talk about the possibility of the debate as being all seven candidates. And the performances of everyone in the scene, the performances are all so great. It's all sort of playing as planned. They go in together with very different reasons. Santos just wants to be in the debate and Russell wants as many people as possible. So it's not just a one-on-one -on -one between him and Hoynes in which he will look bad, but they're going in with this unified front and everything's going well. And then Santos just cannot help himself. He's got the win. They're going to allow it. Russell stands up and says, no, I want everybody in there, but he can't leave well enough alone. We should also take a minute to discuss format. Uh, these debates can be better, not just bigger. We all saw what happened in the New Jersey Senate debates. And just watching Bradley Whitford and Gary Cole reacting to his idea is so fantastic. He doesn't want to go by the script. He doesn't want to go by the script in his campaign as a whole. And um, there are so many moments like this in politics where you go into a room and the whole thing is essentially scripted beforehand. You're going to say this. He's going to say that. We've all got our roles to play. And I think there's a moment even earlier in that scene where, you know, Russell makes some kind of a joke and Santos kind of takes the wind out of it. He feels he's not there to play along. Yeah. And I think that's who we, he was. And then, and then when he actually turns to him and addresses him directly and says, What do you say, Mr. Vice President? A real debate with all of the candidates truly engaging on the issues. Good. I don't know if you had written great or good. He makes a sound somewhere between great and good to like accept yeah. the proposition. And I love that. I love whatever that sound is that he makes. He's great. He's great in everything. And uh, some, he's a really good actor but has incredible timing, yeah, almost has the rhythm of comic timing, even when it's not comic. Uh, he's just fantastic. I want to jump back to the moment that I brought up earlier when Santos and Ned are talking about Fredonia and the scene right before that. Santos has decided he's not going to run the chicken ad and he and Josh walk out of the building and they have an argument about it. And Santos knows that, you know, it's not something he wants to do and they're frustrated, but it's not until Josh leaves and Ned comes in that Santos figures out what he's going to do. I really loved this detail, Eli, that like in order to get the sort of his engine running and feel inspired to make the, the right move, 
there's like this external tension that Josh brings, because like you said, they're kicking each other's tires. They're at odds with each other on so many issues. It's only when he can get Ned in there instead, somebody who has history with, somebody who he knows he can trust, and they can have their own sort of little conversation about Fredonia and the idea of the presidential voice. You think there's such a thing as a presidential voice? It always seemed to me that the president makes the voice, not the other way around. And it's once he has that conversation that he figures out what he's going to do with the commercial. You know, and then there's incredible thrust from that, that point on until he records the ad. I love that you took Josh away for him to have that epiphany and brought Ned in instead. I think in my mind, as I mentioned earlier, I, I think Josh Lyman, you know, became sort of a stand-in for me of all the, you know, very smart, sophisticated, experienced um, staffers, operatives who would be working for somebody like Al Gore and for other people too, and be trying to push them and hammer them sometimes on what they knew to be the politically right thing to do. Also understanding that the prerogative always belongs to the boss. Well, this is this episode is where we finally get a little forward motion to Josh and Santos working as a team. Yes. It's, we get those moments. I've been waiting for it. There's been kind of this buildup where you keep saying, why don't they have these basic discussions? And they've got, they've got to hammer some stuff out. There's communication issues here, and they're at loggerheads, and they should be past this. And it was awesome to get that moment, that sort of epiphany for Josh, that he hasn't been letting Santos run his own campaign or run the campaign he wants to run, and that Josh can now shift into supporting what Santos wants to do. I mean, you'd be surprised how many times in real campaigns and on real, you know, staffs in the White House and, and in, you know, on Capitol Hill, people, you know, working closely together, someone in their chief of staff don't have very basic conversations that are almost sometimes too big picture and obvious to even feel like they need a conversation. You know, someone hires you to run their campaign, you know, very quickly, the, you know, you have so many logistical things to hammer out. You don't go on that weekend retreat where you should really be talking about what are our basic principles right. here? How do we want to do it? You'd think those would be the first things that you talk about, but very often they aren't. I hope it doesn't come across as so brittle, like they hate each other or something. They, they both want the same thing. But Josh kind of says at one point in the episode, we're game players, not rule makers. And um, what Santos is really saying is, watch me, you know, I'm going to make some rules. And it's funny, in our separate conversation with David Axelrod, he was saying that this, this was a quality that Obama had. And, and these were frustrations that Obama had when they first started working together. He just hated the rules and the structure of everything. And sometimes you can fight it and sometimes you can't. It feels a little bit strange maybe to me that one of my favorite scenes in this episode is one in which none of our regular West Wing characters appears, you know, that it's these two. But what I think what I love about it is that it feels very much like the West Wing. But you, somehow you have transposed this dynamic that we know really well between President Bartlett and his staff with these two new faces. You know, when, when John Wells kind of pulled me aside one day uh, after a writer's meeting this season of the show, he basically said exactly this. He said, what we're going to do and what you're going to start to, you know, help me with is um, we're going to show Josh and Matt Santos having an argument, you know, by a dumpster behind a donut shop, you know, with nobody there, nobody interested. And we're going to carry one of these two campaigns all the way to the Oval Office. And um, it felt very exciting because it felt like something the show hadn't done, but we could evolve into something different and, and into a part of politics that we hadn't really explored up to then. Did you know whether it was going to be Vinick or Santos? My understanding 
is that when Jimmy Smith was approached and when he was cast in that role, that the expectation was that if the show were to continue, he would succeed Martin Sheen as president on the show. And Alan Alda was cast a little bit later as uh, Arnie Vinnick. They were both fantastic in the roles. The campaign was very exciting to all of us as writers. And at the beginning of season seven, John Wells said to the writing staff, what if we open this thing up? And what if we don't presume that it's going to be one candidate or another, but we just see where the story takes us and we'll be in as much suspense as everybody else. Hmm. And um, that was really interesting because we didn't always know what was happening. I often sometimes felt in a collegial way that Lawrence O'Donnell would write an episode and Matt Santos would end up with egg on his face. I would write an episode and Arnie Vinnick would end up with egg on his face. And, um, you know, we were each, you know, pretty strong advocates for our candidates in the writer's room. But um, what was reported and written in a couple places, and I don't remember now if it was at the time during season seven or if it was right afterwards, was that there was a period in which Vinnick was going to be the winner for sure. That's not the case in my memory. Yeah. In my memory for a while, it was definitely going to be Santos. Then the decision was made to open that up. We were still debating and arguing until the very last second when the decision was made in a certain way. But, you know, Alan Alda's a phenomenal actor. Jimmy Smith's a phenomenal actor. They're both such different presences. So there are some great moments with the two of them together in season seven. And um, we were discovering a lot about the Jimmy Smith's character also as we went along. And, you know, the Alan Alda character too. But, I mean, I think in some of these early Santos episodes, you see him as a pure idealist in the sort of Bartlett a mold. I think we started to decide as a group in the writer's room that um, he also had to be good at politicking because that was part of his job. And if we didn't show him, if we just showed him being a sort of a naive guy who refused to do things the way they're done, he might not seem like a competent politician. So as we went along, I think we gave him a few sharper elbows and, and he did some things that showed that he could do what needed to be done when it needed to be done. Uh, so we were learning too, maybe in the way a candidate learns, you know, what makes someone feel like a compelling politician. Because Bartlett was certainly able to make political compromises and to do things for political reasons. Yeah. Can we talk about the actual moment of Santos's ad when he's live on TV? So how about this? I will never say anything about my opponents or anything about anything without saying it myself, right into the camera. You might not get to hear much of me, but when you do, you'll know I stand by it. I'm Matt Santos. And you better believe I approve this ad. I feel like there is a continuum of these magical moments of in fiction about things that happen live on TV. For me, the points are uh, network, broadcast news, the West Wing at a couple different moments, and then the pilot of Studio 60 too, and then maybe Newsroom as well. Do you feel like that? No question. You're 100% right. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of power and, and uh, sort of inherent drama in the cameras are rolling and nobody can stop what's happening from happening. And there, there's no second take. There's no second chance. The greatest version in history has got to be network which is so stunning and surprising and disarming. I know it's something Aaron Sorkin loves and referenced in his own way in, in the Studio 60 opening. We always talked about the West Wing in the offices as the politics 
we would like to see, wish fulfillment. What is the thing you would want to tweak about real life and what's the fantasy version of it that we all yearn for? But what made it a live moment? Probably just the excitement and just to heighten the drama and just this feeling of you don't know what he's going to do or when he's going to do it. And, you know, as I describe it, it even sounds cheap and gimmicky, but (laughs) it doesn't play that way. I was, yeah, I was wondering if those other sort of famous moments in fiction of, of live broadcast stuff had been an influence at all on you. Absolutely. I mean, certainly network. I was obsessed with network. I still am. I think it's a staggering work of genius. Have you seen the stage play? You know, I haven't seen the stage play. Um, Brian Cranston is so incredibly talented. Uh, I hear he's he was amazing in it. Wait, is it still going on? I think so. I don't think he's done yet. I should go. I mean, he's great. My pal Tony Goldwin, also in it, playing the William right. role. That's right. Well, we should all go. I want to see it. Field trip. Field trip. West Wing podcast field trip. Oh, we can do our uh, pilot of Rishi Runs a Musical. <laughs> <laughs> the movie is so uh, special. Uh, And that moment is so special, partly also because it begins as a mundane moment and nobody's expecting anything to happen. So you can't do justice to it. But anyway, yeah, it just network is an absolute point of reference and probably a couple similar moments on the West Wing uh, for me were points of reference. I also want to talk about Donna's role in the Russell campaign. I love that she is maybe the lone voice of dissent in that crew. I don't agree, Mr. Vice President. The one person who's who is trying to do the thing that I think Will said that he wanted to do, which is, you know, to push the candidate to be the candidate that they want. Yeah. There's a moment where they're back in their headquarters and Russell is taking a shot at Santos and everybody laughs and she's the only one who doesn't. She says, I think you're wrong. And she actually does push it. I don't know. I, I loved the stuff that you were giving Donna in this episode. I think for me, having worked in politics, you know, in my in my twenties and starting out really as the kid in the room, I think I was really interested in just this character moment of somebody who is used to just taking phone calls and getting coffee, realizing that she was in the room and could say something Hmm. and could voice an opinion. You know, those are scary moments and important moments. And they're the things that turn you into Josh Lyman you know, and Will Bailey, you know, having those first moments where you realize, wait a minute, I actually don't think what everybody else in this room thinks. Here's one thing that I think that I noticed. Can you confirm either of you in the final scene when we do get all seven candidates, there is no Tim Matheson on that stage. Do we see the candidates? We do. I mean, we see them. We we don't see all of them very clearly. There's one shot from the wings and we see some of them, but some people are blocked. And then there's a, a very wide shot where we see all seven of them. And I am pretty certain that none of those people is Tim Matheson. You know, hold on a second. I would have to look at it again. But what I can look at while we're talking is look at the script real fast, because it's entirely possible that that was actually that maybe we just had Tim for a particular day and he then wasn't available that other day. Hold on yeah, which makes sense. And that, and that maybe they thought, ah, you get a tall guy and you stick him there and no one's going to know. Yeah, exactly. I was like, who's the guy? But I think the person who is supposed to be standing in for where you would put coins is wearing glasses, I think. And, and I think I was like, is it just supposed to be that they're like, well, and then here's a seventh guy. Or if that person is actually supposed to be a lookalike for coins. Here's the actual stage direction. Uh, It's Josh and Amy talking. 
They watch as Santos, Russell, Hoynes, and the rest of the Democratic field take the stage and the debate begins. And then the moderator starts speaking and Josh's attention drifts to the stage and Amy slips off. So, yeah. But I'm pretty sure if you go to go back and look, you will not see Hoynes actually on there. Well, this is not to compare it in any way, but uh, fans of The Godfather may know that there are some uh, long shots of Robert Duvall walking with the movie producer he goes to visit early in the film, this guy Waltz. And it's the two of them walking around his fancy Beverly Hills estate together. And uh, it's actually neither actor. It's some guy with a white wig playing the movie producer. And it's a bald guy or a balding guy standing in for Robert Duvall because they didn't have enough money and Coppola was out in LA doing B-unit shots and he just stuck a couple actors in and did it from a distance. And on the DVD commentary that I listened to, Coppola is saying, I'm ashamed of this, I'm not proud of it, it looks horrible to me. So that's all my way of saying, really, this episode is as good as The Godfather. <laughs> there you go, exactly. Only in that That's the ultimate way. point. Yes, exactly. But this is, I think, the most egregious use of a stand-in since Game On, where we saw someone who was clearly not Rob Lowe walking away from Josh on the beach. I knew that was coming. Well, that's funny. I, I, I uh, saw Judd Apatow do stand-up uh, a few months ago in L.A. He, he performs at this Club Largo fairly often, and he was saying that he's so steeped now in movies and TV as a producer, as a director, that he said he can't watch anything now and just enjoy this entertainment because everything, every movie and every TV show he watches, he's just looking at how bad the extras are. <laughs> that's all he watches anything for anymore. <laughs> oh, that's great! Thanks for another great interview. Oh, it's it a wasn't really an interview; it was a hangout, a recap. It was a yes, it was definitely a hangout. It's it's always so fun for me because you know this was such a special thing to work on this show, and I love thinking about it and talking about it. It's. Uh, I'm proud I was any kind of part of it at all. Next time, though, bring donuts instead of sending us pictures from your brunch. I know. The donuts were really good. They looked good. And thanks to all of you, dear listeners, for listening to this episode. If you want to follow Eli and absorb more of his brilliance, you can find him on Twitter, at Eli Addy. He's also on Instagram, at Eli.Addy. And in addition to that, of course, you can find the West Wing Weekly online at West Wing Weekly on Twitter and on our Facebook page or our website, thewestwingweekly.com. Many thanks to Margaret Miller, Zach McNeese, and Nick Song for their help on the podcast. And many thanks to Radiotopia, the podcast network of which we are a part. You can check out all of the shows on Radiotopia at radiotopia.fm. Next week, we've got a special episode. Eli will be with us again, and we're going to be joined by President Obama's chief strategist, David Axelrod. And the two of them are going to tell us all about how Matthew Santos was influenced by the real-life persona of then-state senator Barack Obama in 2004. It's a fantastic conversation. We've already recorded it, and I'm really excited for all of you to hear it. Okay. Okay. What's next? Before we go, we want to recommend another podcast to you. You might already know the Radiotopia podcast, Criminal. It's hugely popular and incredible. But the makers of Criminal have a second podcast called This Is Love. And the good news is, This Is Love is back with their third season. If you don't know it, you should. It was one of the most downloaded new shows of 2018. And honestly, the stories in this show will just make you feel amazing about the world. As Rishi mentioned, they've launched their third season, and it all takes place in Italy. The first episode is about a tiny mountain town where, since 1897, people have come together to join something called the Ugly Club. 
I'm not just the president. I'm also a client. (laughs) Will you tell me what the criteria for being in the ugly club is? What is the test? Uh, We have a card where there are different marks. It starts with undefined, insufficient, medium, good, great, and extraordinary. And of course, we talk about ugliness, not beautiness. So uh, if you are extraordinary, it means that you are extraordinary ugly. Um, would you give me the test? Of course, of course, of course. Uh, if you want, we can do it right now. Yes, and don't hold back. I mean, I would like, to, I would like a, a real <laughs> critique here. Okay. And now we have to judge. Go listen now to the whole story by searching for This Is Love. Radiotopia.